I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6. We spent the last several weeks looking at the Old Testament prophet Haggai. And while Haggai felt applicable in our lives, felt a relevant message, I, I heard one pastor describe the book of Acts as, as his favorite book to preach. Because it's immediately obvious when you open the book that it has meaning for us right now, today, in this moment as a church. Now, you may remember in April, May, and June, we spent time in the book of Acts. We looked at the opening five chapters. And so having looked at an Old Testament prophet, we now return to, for the next several weeks, look at Acts chapters 6 and 7. The book of Acts is the story of the church in the first days, weeks, and months after the ministry of Jesus on earth, after his ascension into heaven. And so we call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's the ministry of the church, but, but really it's the continuing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his apostles. Well, that makes for a lengthy title, and so we shorten it to the book of Acts. But it's the ministry of Jesus through his church. We've seen the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people. The Spirit of God, God himself empowering the church for the work of missions, for the hope of the gospel, to make the name of Jesus Christ known. So we've seen conflict, we've seen turmoil, we see the beginnings of persecution. And here in Acts chapter 6, we find a problem within the church itself, a problem which the church then identifies the need to respond to. So listen as I read. This is Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let me pray that God would apply his word into our lives. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have heard in your word that you are the shepherd who cares for us, who leads us and comforts us, who protects us and feeds us. Lord, we thank you for the promises of scripture which point us to the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, the one who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we rejoice in the power of Jesus displayed before us. Lord, I pray for those that have gathered here that if they have not yet put their trust in Christ, those who will listen to us online, if they haven't placed their faith in Jesus, that they would do so today, hearing your word read and preached, hearing the truths of Scripture announced and sung. Lord, we pray that, that we who have put our trust in Jesus would be changed and transformed, that we might follow after Jesus. Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus the Christ, the one who died for us, the one who's been raised from the dead, the King who reigns in heaven. Amen. 
how can you tell if you have a servant's attitude? That was a question posed by a small group Bible study leader to the group. How can you tell if you have a servant's attitude? And after discussion, the group came up with this answer. By the way you react when you're treated like a servant. How can you tell if you have the attitude of a servant? If you're willing to humbly serve others by the way you react when you're treated as if you're a servant. I felt the call to vocational gospel ministry as a high school student. I prepared for pastoral ministry as a college student, choosing a, a major and a, and a college course of study to, to enter into vocational gospel ministry. Now, my first church internship, official internship, was at the church that my, my brother served at on staff and my parents were members of when I was a, after my junior year of high school, or a junior year of college. I was a youth ministry intern, and I was going to be in charge of the middle school ministry which was an exciting opportunity for me. I had opportunity a week by week to teach the gospel to 75, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders gathered weekly. I got to lead an outreach ministry but by playing roller hockey with a group of kids and, and them inviting their friends. I, I had privileges to, to share the gospel. But at the beginning of the summer, I encountered some bad news. I was told the youth ministry budget got cut, and so we don't have enough money to pay you for the whole internship. You can only work half the number of hours you had anticipated. Now, this was a problem because I needed the income, but I also wanted the experience. But they said, but there's good news. They need help at the other end of the building working facilities. So you can fill your hours and get paid. And now as the, the, the new man in the job, it meant that I spent a lot of my summer cleaning toilets and mopping floors. And admittedly, I was rather disappointed at the beginning because I thought, wait, don't you know who you have here? You have Kevin, a man gifted by God, called by God for preaching and teaching, a man sent here to do evangelism, and you're going to have me on my knees in a bathroom scrubbing toilets? And yes, I had great opportunities to share the gospel to disciple students. I learned much about what it is to, to grab hold of a student's attention and then expose the idols of our hearts and, and, and preach the gospel. I had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel through discipleship, of counseling parents with their kids. But as I look back, I probably learned more cleaning toilets. Not only because pastoral ministry often means if I'm the one in the building and the toilet needs to be cleaned, then I can help with that. It's not only because sometimes pastoral ministry feels about as terrible as that. It's because the very attitude of our hearts should be that of a servant. To follow Christ is to serve his church. And so maybe working at the other end of the building was more important for me than standing in front of a group with an open Bible. I probably learned more holding a mop in my hand than I did holding the Bible in my hand that summer. To follow Christ is to serve his church. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 6. As the church faces conflict, they have to be humble enough to be honest about the need, to identify the problem, to be willing to serve one another for the good of Christ, for the sake of the mission of Jesus the Savior. And so when you look with me at Acts chapter 6, the, the problem is a simple enough problem. Look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. The, the, there, were, there was a complaint 
against the Hebraic Jews because the widows of the Grecian Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It's a problem of food distribution. We've seen earlier in the book of Acts that the people loved and cared for one another, that they sold property to meet the needs of each other. And yet, right now, we've identified a problem. There's not enough food to go around. We're not meeting the needs of everyone. And it's, it's, we see here clearly an ethnic conflict. It's a conflict between, yes, people who all grew up Jewish. Well, most of them. We find out later that at least Nicholas was a convert. But most of them grew up Jewish, grew up reading the Old Testament. But the, the difference between someone who grew up speaking Aramaic and someone who grew up speaking Greek was not merely in the language that they, they would use to worship, not merely in the songs that they would want to sing when they gathered together for worship, not merely in the language of the hearts. It was, it was in the very cultures in which they'd grown up. A difference between a, a Hebraic culture and a, a Grecian culture. Differences even in the very patterns of worship that they anticipated and expected. And this is a, a problem then for a church that is meant to be a community that welcomes people from all nations, from all backgrounds, from all ethnicities. But don't you see then that conflict will probably be inevitable? As you gather sinners from multiple cultures, sinners who will hold on to things in their culture that they think are central without realizing that, that they need to hold on to the Word of God and the mission of the church. A confusion that happens even for us today when we think about the things that, that well, isn't that the way everybody does it? I mean, that's how I grew up doing that at church, and so that's got to be the way that's the right way. That's the only way to, to do it. And we do that when we think that, that there are certain instruments that could be used or, or certain hymnals that need to be opened when we, when we just assume that that's the way I've always done it, and so doesn't everybody everywhere have to do it that way? But the need is clear. The plight of widows being overlooked is one that, that cannot be tolerated. I mean, if you think of reading through the Old Testament, widows are among the most vulnerable in the community. And again and again, God says that he, he will care for the widows, that the church must care for the widows. And so the need is clear. But the danger is real. Because the church could fracture along ethnic lines. Wouldn't it be better if we had a, an Aramaic speaking service and then a Greek speaking service and, and you know what why don't we just choose different leaders for all of those and why don't we kind of go our own ways and, and then we won't have to deal with any of these problems so the danger is real but, but we see the the solution then the solution to this conflict comes when the, the apostles first of all they hear the complaint and they admit that there's a problem now how do we, how do we know that it's because when when the people come and bring this problem to them the the apostles say well, yes, we have to find a solution. They're admitting the problem is real. They don't, they don't brush it aside and say, well, you know, I don't think it's as bad as you think. And, you know, really, I think if we just make a couple of small changes, there's, there's no issue here. They don't even argue that it's not a, an ethnic problem. Yes, they, they, there may not have been. It's, it's, it's unclear whether there's intentional ethnic malice afoot, whether somebody took the list of all the widows and said, hey, why don't we rank the widows and put the Hebraic widows at the top? Or it may have just been even more systematic than that. It just accidentally happened because, well, the person making the list knew all of the Hebraic widows and didn't know the others, and so they got added. But when they got added, they got put at the bottom of the list. And they didn't get put at the bottom of the list because they were Grecian. That's not, that's not how the list was made, but that's how the list was accidentally made. And so, yes, the, the, there may not have been ethnic malice, but the problem was clearly identifiable along ethnic lines. 
And notice that in solving the problem, who it is that the apostles appoint to, to be those that will lead in bringing a solution. They are men, when we read all seven of their names, and the solution is simple enough, the apostles say, we can't set aside the work we're doing, so we need to set aside, there are 12 of us, but, so why don't we set aside seven men to do this work? But when you read the names of the men, you find out that all of them have Greek names. It seems like all seven of them come from the Grecian Jewish part of the church. And we're told this by commentators who, who identify these names as names that, that come from the Greco-Roman world rather than the, the Aramaic world more, more localized here around Jerusalem. Their, their names, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Nicholas is the only one for whom we're given any identifiable details about where he grew up or that he actually converted, that he's probably full-on Greek. He's not even a Grecian Jew. He's Greek who became a convert. He doesn't have any Jewish blood in his body at all. And yet, what, is the, what do the apostles do? They say the need is clear. It breaks down here along these, these ethnic lines, and so we need those who are within the community who can identify the marginalized to meet the need. They don't say, well, you know what, for, for equity, why don't we take four Hebraic Jewish men and, and, and let's make it even, let's not go with an odd number like seven, let's, let's go with four, four uh, uh, Grecian Jewish men and so that they can kind of work this out, they can come up with a solution. No, what do they do? They say, let's appoint seven men and all seven men are men who are Greek by background, based on at least what we know about them from their names. Now, it's not merely that they were chosen because they were Greek. What were the, the identifiable markers in their lives? Look at verse 3. When they tell the church, choose seven men from among you who, verse 3, are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay, those are high, those are, those are high standards. Men who are full of the Spirit, who, who not only have the Spirit indwelling them, because that's true of every believer who's put their trust in Christ, but men who are so filled with the Spirit that you can see the effects of God himself in their very lives. It's the kind of language Paul, the, the apostle, who, who we actually haven't met yet in the book of Acts, but, but Paul, the apostle, will talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the, the marks of God's Spirit in their lives. And, and we're told then that Stephen, look at verse 5, he's a man, not only is he full of the Spirit, but he's full of faith. He has thrown himself upon the mercy of God. He relies entirely upon God. These are the men that we need to lead. Men who have the spiritual maturity, which shows itself forth in practical wisdom, but yet they're all Grecian Jews. And so we could make a clear and direct application today, which I think is useful for us, that as church members, you are to identify, we as a church are meant to identify men who have these marks, being full of faith, full of God's Spirit, who can serve in ministry. Men who will be set aside by the laying on of hands, following the pattern established here in, in Acts chapter 6. And so if you look in your order of worship, you'll see that my email is written down there, kevin at faithwilmington.com, because we as elders want you to identify men who meet these standards and the others set forth in, in the books of Timothy and Titus. Men who could serve and be trained to serve in these ministries. And so, so go ahead and do that. Nominate men to serve in these offices. And so that's a, a clear and direct application. But I was challenged this week in, in, in reading, in the, in the previous weeks, the words of Pastor Jim Boyce. He's the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He asks, he says, well, how do you think we, as Presbyterians, would solve this problem? 
If a problem like this arose in our church, how would we be likely to solve a problem? Ethnic divide showing up in the church. He says, well, maybe, and sometimes we do this, we just take the complainers and we throw them out. We just say, we don't want any of your kind here. We don't want that kind of complaint. If that's what's important to you, then you need to go find somewhere else where that matters. And so we're just done with you. We remove you from the church. He says, now, sometimes we, we don't want to be that, that bold, and so we, we let them stay. We let the complainers hang around, but we just make sure we isolate them. We remove them from any influence so that when they complain, there's nobody really left for them to complain to. We, we essentially shun them, but, but let them stay. He says, or if it becomes contentious, then what do we do? We call a, a meeting of the congregation, and we make sure we line up the votes, and we make sure that the minority stays in the minority, and we just outvote them so that we get our way and that they have to be quiet. But Pastor Boyce points out, don't you see that that's part of the problem? Just the, the pronouns that we're using. Us versus them, we against they. He says, or the best Presbyterian solution of all is, well, we can just delay things. Let's appoint a committee. A committee that'll meet and it'll talk about it. Not a committee to actually do anything, just a, a committee to, to just keep going on and on. So the complainers can complain, but we just keep it there in committee forever. Now maybe that's how we want to react when someone raises an issue of ethnic justice today. Especially if somebody uses language from our culture that we find disconcerting. Now I know this is dangerous ground for us to consider as a church, because some of you are thinking, Kevin, what right do you have to talk about this? You might be thinking, look at you. And in some sense, you'd have a point. Because through my gospel ministry experience, I've been able to place myself in context where I have always been in the majority. So that if I want to ignore the minority, I can easily do it, and I can move on without any trouble at all. But maybe we could learn something from what the apostles do here. They're still in the majority. They still have all of the power. They could just say, quiet down. It's not as big a deal as you say. Let's move it along. And yet, what do they do? They admit that there's a real need. They listen to the need, and then they seek real solutions by empowering people from within the marginalized community to seek practical solutions. See, but some of you are uncomfortable with me talking about issues of, of ethnic justice, of racial justice, because you want to make sure, wait, wait, Kevin, I don't even, I'm not even comfortable with that word. Race is a social construct that should have nothing to do with, with what we talk about here, because all we're dealing with here are, are differences between Hebraic Jews and Grecian Jews, and last time I looked, we don't have that problem at all today in our church. I don't know anyone who's concerned about whether or not we speak in Greek or in Aramaic. And so you think, why don't we just stick with what the Bible says, Kevin, and leave this aside? Some of you are, 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 will be upset with me because you think I'm merely virtue signaling. I'm merely bringing up this issue so that I can say, look at Kevin. Kevin is woke. Kevin knows what's going on. Kevin's in the know. See, but, and, but the danger is if we never talk about these kinds of issues— then we just ignore the problem. And think of it. Think of the way that you react, or just the way that I react, 
when somebody uses language I'm not comfortable with. Language drawn from, from other arenas of life, and I think, ah, I'm not sure I would say it that way. So, but the apostles, they don't, they don't say, no, no, no. Why don't you bring the problem to me only on my terms? No, they appoint Grecian men to identify the problems and help the Grecian widows. Think of the way you respond when somebody uses the phrase, black lives matter. And you want to say, whoa, 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 wait. Have you done any research into the background of what that organization is all about? And, and, and here's the thing. I'm not talking about when, when a, the culture talks about this. I'm not talking about when the news media talks about this. I'm talking about when a brother or sister in Christ wants to talk about this issue with you. And you won't even listen to what they have to say because you don't like the language that they've chosen. Because many of our brothers and sisters, when they use that phrase, they're not trying to say only black lives matter. They're trying to say through much of church history, through much of the history of your own denomination, of our own denomination, when we say something like all lives matter, we have not genuinely meant it. And so are we humble enough to listen and say, hey, that's a, that sounds like a complicated phrase. I've, I've heard people use that in different ways. Could you explain to me what you mean when you say black lives matter? Would we be humble enough to listen to those identifying the problems of the vulnerable community. And so when many of our brothers and sisters in Christ use that phrase, they're saying, through most of the history of the church, when we say all lives matter, we have not included black lives. And so what I'm asking you to admit is that black lives matter to God. See, in an individual conversation, that might be something you could agree with. That should be something you agree with. But too often, we won't even start the conversation. Because we'll point to, well, yeah, but have you listened to so-and-so online? Have you, have you done the research? But, 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 without being willing to listen, all we do is stand in our position of privilege and say, I don't even want to listen to the problems there. And so when we look around, we're surprised that those that are most vulnerable and broken don't find a home in our own community. See, maybe... Maybe we need to be humble enough, like the apostles, to say this is a genuine problem in the church. A, a problem with the apostles as the leaders. There wasn't a weakness in the teaching of the church. There wasn't a, a weakness in the leadership of the church. There's a weakness in the human heart that needs the correction and instruction of God. And so I don't mean for today, in just a couple of minutes, that, that I've solved this problem for you. I don't mean this to be the end of the conversation. If anything, I, it, it, it's the beginning of the conversation. And by conversation, I mean conversation. I don't mean I want you to write down all of your thoughts in a lengthy email and send it to me today. I mean, if you need to talk to me, then call me and let's talk. If you have a concern with your community group, then, then pull someone aside in your community group and say, I need help thinking this through. Because I'm talking about the way you and I talk about this one to another. I don't mean a political, I'm not dealing with the broader social political concepts right now. I'm dealing with one-on-one -on -one conversations within the church. Are we willing to say yes, even within my church? There might be problems along ethnic and racial lines. There might be a need for justice in my own community. See, we as a church have much to learn. I have much to learn.
The gospel is big enough to reach all people everywhere. And if we're serious about being part of God's mission, then we need to learn to respond honestly to conflict. And you can see that when the apostles bring the solution to the church, look at verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, that might be the last time in church history that a solution to conflict pleased every single person in the room. And to be fair, it comes before they actually appoint the seven men. So there might have been an eighth guy sitting out there who thought, well, pick me, pick me, pick me. I deserve to pick. I got to get picked. And he was disappointed by the end of verse 5 or the end of verse 6. But at least at the beginning of verse 5, the proposal pleased everyone. Because what are the apostles doing? They're humbly willing to serve by listening to the needs of the church and then appointing men to serve to meet that need. But notice that solving the problem of caring for the Grecian widows does not derail the mission of the church. I mean, when the apostles bring this plan to everyone, look at verse 2. They gather all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now notice, they're not saying that waiting on tables is unimportant. They actually appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit and ordain them for this ministry, for this purpose. So they're saying that's important, but what they're saying is we can't ourselves set aside the work of the church. We can't set aside the ministry of the word. And they, they repeat it then again in verse 4. That they're going to they're appoint these seven men so that, verse 4, that they can give attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we see there's a centrality of the gospel message, the taking the word of God and saying, this is what we need to believe. We need to announce this good news to other people so they will respond. We need to teach others to grow in gospel hope, in depending upon God in prayer and preaching his word. Now, I, I, I know that as soon as I lift up the Bible, some of you think, oh, goodness, really? You're going to go back to an ancient document and trust that? But that's, don't you see, that's what the church is doing from its very foundation is, is, is a ministry of the word, taking the word of God. And many of us in our culture are uncomfortable with, the, with the, the trust in God's word. And maybe because you took a comparative religions class in college and you say, well, I know lots of religious systems have books that they trust. And so, you know, who, how could we choose between them? And, and why don't we just move along past the, that antiquated? But don't you see, when you, when you make that kind of statement, that's a pretty huge statement. You're actually saying that well, God hasn't spoken, therefore I don't have to listen. But that's the very issue that, that we'd be debating. As Christians, we're saying, oh, the reason we listen, the reason we trust this book is because God himself speaks to us. This is God's word for us since we're dependent upon him. And so if you have doubts about the truth of God's word, maybe the question I'd ask you is, what evidence do you have for your doubts? Upon what authority are you basing your trust? As a Christian, I'm admitting, yes, I trust in God's word because God himself speaks to me. But on what basis would you reject this truth? It's really a question of who do you believe? And as Christians, we say, this is the word of God, therefore we listen to God's word. Now, it's important, though, that we clarify something here. The disciples aren't saying that the ministry of mercy is unimportant. No, they're actually saying it's so important we need a, a whole new category of men in the church to serve. We, we have gospel preachers, we have evangelists, but we don't have deacons. We don't have servants to wait on these tables. And so, so by the inspiration of God, they set, set these men apart for that ministry. 
They're not saying that justice does not matter. They're saying justice matters so much we have to do something about it. But they will not let these kinds of concerns keep them off of their their mission as a church of making the gospel known. And yet today we sometimes fall into this kind of error. When you say something like, just preach the gospel. Preacher, stop talking about what's happening out there and just point me back to God's word. Stop dealing with culture and start preaching God's word. Just preach the gospel. And yet, if you brought that complaint to the apostles, you would have been one of the people, you'd have been the only person here in Acts chapter 6 who raised their hand and said, I don't like your plan. Because you have a plan that both addresses the mission of the church and meets the needs of the widows. And I want a plan that only focuses on the mission of the church. See, sometimes we use that kind of language of just preach the gospel as shorthand to say, stop caring about people. Stop dealing with issues of justice. But the solution of the apostles is not to ignore the problem of ethnic justice. They address the problem while prioritizing the mission of the church. It's not an either or. We we as a church can do both. God has provided for us members and, and, and officers to help us do both because we see the gospel go forward in power. The, the bookends of this section of Scripture, of, of Acts 1, 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, show us the, the spread of the gospel. Look at, look at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... See, the reason the apostles may not have even noticed that there was a problem among the feeding of the widows is they're, they're on mission. I mean, they're out preaching. People are coming to faith in Christ. There are baptisms taking place. This is a celebration of the mission of God. And even this conflict won't slow the church down because look at the bookend at, at verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. See, Luke, the author of this section of Scripture, wants us to see that the mission will continue. The church is a church on mission, announcing gospel hope to those who have not yet heard it. And even the very structure of the book of Acts reminds us of this. We're, we're introduced to seven men, but, but the first two are men that we'll get to learn a little bit more of in the coming chapters. We're introduced to Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 will be the ministry of Stephen, who, yes, clearly must have met the needs of the, the, the Grecian widows because then he's, he's out preaching the gospel. For Stephen, it's not an either-or. Either I do the work of, of mercy or, I do, or I'm engaged in the mission of the church. He says, well, of course I can do both. Of course, the work of justice and mercy is at the heart of God, and so I, I can preach the gospel. And then the next man we meet is Philip who in Acts chapter 8, now we won't, we won't continue into chapter 8. We actually looked at that section of Scripture several years ago. But in Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent by God to meet an Ethiopian, a man who has no connection ethnically to the church, and announce gospel hope to him. See, the very structure of the book shows us that the gospel is going forth. And even verse 7 reminds us that it's a large number of priests who become obedient to faith. The Hebrews among the Hebrews, those religious leaders leading the people of God in worship, maybe those most resistant to hearing the gospel, even they are responding to the message of hope. See, the men appointed here in Acts chapter 6 to meet the need are deacons. And the word means servant, someone who waits on others, who serves others, who meets the needs of others. But they are deacons on mission. Deacons who see the ministry of Jesus and say, that must be my ministry. Because Jesus is 
the true servant. With a capital S, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And the the Gospels tell us that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the price to forgive us of our sins with his own life. See, we serve because we have a Savior who served us. A Savior who, into, into whose presence everyone who came should have bowed the knee before him. And you and I read in Philippians that that's going to happen. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus. We'll acknowledge him be to the, to the true Savior and Lord. But he came first not to be served, but to serve us. We can lay down our priorities and take up Jesus' priorities because he laid down his life for us. We can set aside our preferences because Jesus set aside his preferences to go to the cross on our behalf. We can give our lives for his kingdom because he gave his life for us. Doug Nichols shares of his stay in a tuberculosis sanatorium when he was in India. It was the year 1967. He was a missionary with Operation Mobilization, and he contracted tuberculosis. He had to spend several months in this sanatorium to recover. And when he first went in, he had, he had tracts. He had Bibles in the language of the people, and he tried giving them out. He, didn't yet, he hadn't yet learned the language, and so he was trying to use this literature to make the gospel known. He says, but, but the people there wouldn't take it. They didn't like him. They assumed he was, because he was American, a, a rich man taking up a bed, wasting resources that should have gone to someone else in need. What he says is that they didn't know that I was just as broke as they were. He says at one point for several nights he would wake up coughing at two in the morning. And he noticed a little old emaciated man in a bed across from him, trying to get himself up out of bed, and the, the man couldn't do it. He couldn't stand. He began to whimper, but, but then gave up and laid back down. In the morning, the stench was so bad in the ward, and everyone was angry at this man for, for not containing himself. The nurse who cleaned him rolled him violently and, and even slapped the man in anger while cleaning him. Doug says the next night, the same thing happened. He woke coughing at 2 a.m. and saw this man trying to get himself out of bed. Again, he couldn't do it, and he began to cry. And so Doug got himself out of bed and went over to the man. And the man kind of cowered in fear, assuming Doug was coming in anger and frustration for what had taken place the night before. But, but what Doug did was, was scoop the man up. He said the man was so small and so frail that even in his own weakened state, Doug could lift him and carry him to the bathroom, which was really just a, a room off to the side with a hole in the ground. He held the man and helped him, brought him back into the bed. And, and as Doug laid him into the bed, the man, the man leaned up and kissed Doug on the cheek. Doug says at 4 a.m. another patient woke him up with a steaming cup of tea and made motions that he wanted one of those books. He wanted to read what Doug had. Doug said throughout that day, people kept coming to him and asking him for the literature, for the tracts, for the Gospels of John, even though he couldn't speak their language because he was willing to serve, he was able to preach. We need to listen for the need. Identify those that are vulnerable and serve and share the gospel. It's the work of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. It's the mission of the church today. We follow the example of our Savior who served us, and we share in his 
mission. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts. Father in heaven, I pray that your word would would be heavy upon us until we come to you in faith and repentance. Lord, for those that that have not put their trust in Christ, Lord, I, I pray that they would not be comfortable leaving this place today until they confess their sins and put their trust in you. Lord, for those of us who who want to serve, Lord, expose the brokenness of our own hearts. Lord, let us identify places where we were merely clinging to our own preferences rather than to the truth of your word. Lord, let us be humble enough to, to seek meaningful answers, to listen to one another. Lord, give us a heart for the broken and the vulnerable. Let us meet the needs of our, of our neighbors, of our fellow members here at church with humility and with hope. Lord, we come to you asking that you would make us men and women who, who like the, the apostles, like the deacons, like the church in this, in this first century, are full of faith, filled with your Holy Spirit, willing to come to you boldly in prayer. Lord, make us a church that is willing to announce gospel hope in our community. Lord, open doors for the gospel in our lives this week, today. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.